0: The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LastDigital, and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to Linux Action Show episode 389. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Noah, guess what? Big show today. It's true. Coming up on the show this week, Noah climbs 350 feet up into the air. Yes, for real. And he doesn't even like the heights, but he asked a Wireless ISP how their infrastructure runs on Linux, what that's all about. It's a new spectrum of topics that we've never really covered on the show before. And it is a fascinating look at a growing infrastructure where a lot of problems are being solved by Linux. And then in the news segment, we're going to talk about Chrome and Android combining if this is actually a major threat to desktop Linux. We'll discuss that, and maybe it's actually a good thing, too. We'll tell you why that might be. There's been some big community changes for Fedora and KDE. The Tor Project has a new chat client we want to tell you about, and then a couple of major releases next week that you probably need to have on your radar. But no, before all of that, you know what we got? We've got the picks. We've got the picks, exactly. And uh, I love this runs Linux. I'm going to be honest, this one is scratching an itch personally for me. I've been doing a little bit of research, and uh, a couple of people sent me a couple of interesting rigs, and I'm still open to more suggestions, so please do submit them, linuxactionshow.reddit.com, or you can tweet me, at ChrisLAS. I loved this suggestion, though, because I'm trying to build, I want to build the perfect server for the Jupiter Rover. The JB Rover is a mobile studio and I want to have a nice secure mobile computer in there. This rugged vehicle PC runs Linux with dual core fifth gen Intel processors. Now there's two different models I'm going to tell you about. It's coming from a crosser, I think is how you say it. They call it a v- vehicle PC with up to 16 gigabytes of RAM. It supports two types of storage, uh, SATA 3, 2.5 inch drives and M.2 SSDs. If you're looking at it, if you uh, if you're not looking at the video version uh if you don't or if you don't look at the link in the show notes it kind of looks like almost an amp that would go under your seat back in the day it even has ears on both sides to bolt it down to the floor and it has a very small profile a single mini PCI socket can be equipped with communication options such as a Sierra 735 uh, or 7355 LGE and a uh, GPS module which is nice for a mobile studio to have LGE uh, LG LTE built right in, and it also has Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. It also has an a, externally accessible SIM slot, so I can pop that Ting SIM in there for use with the cellular module. I like that. So you can change out the SIM without having to open up the case, which is really cool. And then, Noah, something you might like mm-hmm. is it has uh, an external power supply, which means it could probably set up to run off of DC. Yeah, it looks like it looks like it comes. Well, so... Computers on the inside
1: actually are running DC right. anyway, right? Yeah. And our power supplies convert either to 12 volts or 5 volts. And it, look, judging from the picture here, it looks like what they actually provide is a uh, is three terminals. Looks like a common ground. And then my guess is for these other two is one is a constant source of 12 that will uh, that was as actually what's powering the computer. And my guess for that second terminal, Chris. It is probably tied to an ignition switch in your in your vehicle, so that when you start
0: your car, the computer comes on. I bet you're absolutely right. I bet you're absolutely right. Yeah, it also has a DB9 connectors, uh, two RS232 ports, USB 3.0 ports. Uh, This thing is super rugged. It comes out of the box with support for Fedora 21 or Ubuntu 15.04 as well as Windows 7 and 8. You get up to i7 in it if you want with HD Graphics 6000s. It has HDMI and DVI connectors, so you could also, in my case, have it run the media center directly as well. Four USB three points. I, I think I didn't. I didn't say how many there were. Uh, I really think this is a super neat uh, uh, computer for a mobile setup because also Noah and I, this must must be kind of similar to what you're talking about. It has a low battery voltage monitoring, so it could. If I had this being powered wow. by a, a battery bank, which I would, mm-hmm. um, it can it can go into shutdown mode when that battery bank starts to run low. That's so cool. Yeah. I'm looking, I can't find a price. Do you, have you
1: seen how much they cost?
0: This is the problem, Noah, and this is why I'd love to see uh, some suggestions from the audience, because uh, the only way you get a price <laughs> is by uh, contacting them through an inquiry, oh. and the language, the English is bad, Noah. It is, it is, uh... <laughs> and
1: usually that means that they are expensive, if, if that's the
0: case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's why I know there's got to be somebody out there who's doing this already, on something I can go online and configure and order. I figure. It's got to be a thing. Yeah. So, But these things, you know, this, this is really something, if, if, I, if I really had my way, I'd love to do it all in 2015, um, but I don't know if that's possible. But uh, right now, I'm still running off my XPS laptop for this kind of stuff, and uh, it's kind of getting old. You know, I should probably make a special note. Uh, we are uh, recording the Linux Action Show on Sunday. We're back on Sunday, just for this week right now, uh, because uh, I was out of town on Friday, and Noah, you have been traveling, but could have been doing the show on Friday, I suppose, but... Did you right did you go to the Grand Canyon and make it back since the last show? I did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that happened. Was that a family Not, trip or just a, for you? No, it
1: was a, it was a business trip. And oh, okay. I did take the kids with me. Oh, um, nice but I uh yeah, I took took the kids with me, but yeah, it was a, it was a business trip paid for by by a client. So oh, it was very fun. cool,
0: very cool. Well, uh so uh we're doing the show on uh Sunday. The recording setup's a little bit different. We're just kind of going back to a little bit older of a structure for this week. We'll be back on Friday next week i know some some people in the jblive.tv chat room shout out to you guys thanks for joining us on a sunday a lot of them it works a lot better for them uh and uh, i understand that i think maybe we'll uh we'll we'll keep it on fridays for a bit though just cuz it it has been a life changer for me literally to have a weekend um but uh We'd love to have you join us at jblive.tv on Friday. So, yeah, we're here on Sunday, and it's good to be here. And, Noah, we've got so much to get into. And uh, I have a pick that I think you might seriously want to consider checking out uh, if you use Telegram. I, uh, yes, yes, mm. I use Telegram. Mm-hmm. Well, then, uh, and if you don't use Telegram yet, this pick might make you feel a little bit better about Telegram. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, you know, I'm also going to solve that. So there's, there, I, think it's a, I think it's a pretty cool pick. First, I'm going to tell you about something else pretty cool, and that's DigitalOcean, sponsors here, of the Linux Action Show. And I want to tell you about our promo code. You can use this promo code to get a $10 credit, LASDigital, L-A-S-Digital, all one word, lowercase. You apply that to your account, you get a $10 credit. Now, this is awesome. Because the, the value at DigitalOcean is mind-blowing. It starts, their rigs start at $5 a month. And DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own server on their cloud infrastructure. All SSDs, all running on top of Linux using KVM. You can start in less than 55 seconds. And the pricing plans are so straightforward. So, I, like I mentioned, it starts at $5 a month. That's why if you use the promo code Digital, you get the $10 credit. And then it just goes up from there. They have a $10 plan, etc. And it's just very, very straightforward. And they have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, and a brand new one in Toronto. But I really, really want to stress, it's the interface that sets them apart. It works on all your devices. It's super powerful, yet very intuitive. And if you want to go under the hood, build your own app, or take advantage of some of the open source code that's out there, they have a straightforward API that you can use. You know, I, I, uh, I, can't even, I couldn't even tell you, Noah, but I can almost guarantee you when we're traveling in a couple of weeks to go to Colorado, mm-hmm. I can almost guarantee you. In that process, we will end up spinning up a DigitalOcean droplet. Yes.
1: Yeah. Every time we leave the every time we leave the studio, that happens.
0: Yeah. It is really. It is because within. I mean, it really changes the game within 55 seconds when you have a full performance Linux server that you can also one-click deploy applications to and just have full control over, and, and just if you need an application up with a really fast connection, like for us, a lot of times, like, well, let's bounce the stream up there, or let's use this as a dumping spot and a common working ground, and we'll just set up a server that we can work from. A lot of things like that, then we can just tear it down when we're done. And if you want to try it out, last Digital will give you a $10 credit. Go deploy own cloud, or really SyncThing. If you're implementing your own services now, this is a great solution. And they also make it really easy to move around, and they have floating IPs. Also, they have really good write-ups. They pay their uh, editors. Uh, they have full-time editors, and they pay their contributors, I should say. And they have a tutorial up there right now on how to use SFTPs to securely transfer files. Now, you might, if you're a listener to this show, you probably know all about SFTP. But if you don't or want to know if there's any ways you could use it better, this is a great guide that doesn't even really just specifically apply to DigitalOcean. They just put these out there. And the nice thing is, when you combine their really great interface, their one-click for tons of many, many really good open-source applications, and these tutorials, there's almost nothing you can't accomplish. These are some of the best tutorials on the web. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code, LastDigital, and see why Noah and I are just huge fans of the service and just use it for tons of stuff. You know, I don't
1: want to oversell DigitalOcean or anything, so uh, you know, best be honest here. I, I, think, uh, I think that uh, maybe one of the reasons that we constantly wind up deploying DigitalOcean droplets, you know, basically every other week is, I think I just want to build up my, my count. I think <laughs> I just want to build my droplet count. I don't know if we actually need all those droplets. You think now, about think this, about
0: though, it. dude. If this was a VM si- system that you would have to manage back in the day or, or, mm-hmm. oh, or yeah. even more than that, like a colo where you're actually deploying the Linux servers, this, then, you, would be, you, would, you, would, you would be blowing your mind. Like, oh, my gosh, nope. we're managing so many servers. It's so nope. much work. Nope, that wouldn't happen because I
1: would just decide that we're not going to do video. <laughs> I would just not be sending video from conferences because yeah. there wouldn't be a way yeah. to do it. And I would be like, listen, yeah. Chris, I'd love to send you video, but I really don't have six hours right. to remote in. And, and, and plus in you have to set, to set up the up.
0: contract in the data center, make mm-hmm. sure you don't go over your bandwidth and then make sure yeah, they got the power and, provisions. And then they do
1: that thing where you sign a one year contract <laughs> yeah. and then you put all your your equipment over there with a really good yeah. price. And then when the yeah. contract expires, they jack the price like yeah. seven times up, but you don't move it. You pay the price because your equipment's already there and it's running.
0: Yeah, it's I awful. And, stuff. you know, the other thing people have to appreciate about DigitalOcean is uh, they moved first on SSDs, so they're all SSDs, and they're using KVM, not Zen, which is what a lot of the other guys out there are using. And in my opinion, I think KVM is a much better tool for this job. And I think when you combine that with their great interface, their incredible speeds, and the fact that they work directly with open source projects, and the fact that they pay people in their community who write really good content, I think it's a really cool setup. And I, I think they have the right recipe, right, the right recipe. To be your long term back end infrastructure, even for testing, for production, whatever it is. I mean, that's why we deploy so many droplets, because it really is our go to Linux infrastructure. And it's really great, and you can try it out last digital for free for two months. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. Hmm, the sinus infection's uh, doing me some favors today, No, I tell you what, nothing like doing a, uh, an audio show when you have a sinus infection. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm all right I want to hear about telegram so I teased it yeah so uh there is uh, probably a pretty by almost everybody out there a well-known uh, instant messaging platform called telegram and uh it is I I've I have been surprised at how quickly it has been adopted in the linux community I think there was some surveys that we talked about a while ago it's like now the number three uh, uh messaging program on linux which is incredible when you think about pigeon and, and xmpp and and google talk and all these things that have been around for a long time Telegram has exploded. A lot of open source projects use it using the channels and groups. Jupyter Broadcasting uses it extensively. I use it extensively personally. I know Noah does too. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one thing that's a bit of a bummer is the Telegram client for Linux, for GNU/Linux, is uh, not ideal. First of all, they kind of have their own Qt fork that they're using. Like they're kind of their own Qt library stuff for their own notification stuff. And like a lot of times, we're about to review Fedora next week. And a lot of times when you get, like, a new installation of Fedora, like, you can't get it installed or you have to go download the binary only, which is a clunk to update. And, like, there's a lot of downsides to Telegram on Linux. It's, it's a very functional messaging application. It supports video pictures and, and audio and file transfer and all that stuff. It's, it's really good from that respect. It just feels a little clunky on the Linux desktop. This is where Qgram comes in. Qtgram is a better Telegram client, and it is also a Qt Telegram client, so you have to have the Qt libraries. But uh, Qtgram is a free open source Telegram client for Linux, Windows, and OS and OpenBSD, focusing on user-friendly compatibility with desktop environments. That's, an un- that's a big underscore for me. Qtgram uses Qt5, QML, and LibTelegram, and LibApplicationIndicator uh, technologies, and the Forenza icon and Twitter emoji graphic sets. And uh, they say Qtgram is, since it's free and open source, it means everyone can read the source code and the mechanisms of Qtgram. There's no private things about Qtgram. You can test it. You can look at it. And uh, I've downloaded and installed it. Now, I've got, to, I've, got, I've, I've got to say I've had a couple of problems with it. I got it working on one machine just fine, and I can't get it working on another machine. It's just it's just spinning. But uh, the machine I got it working on, it actually looks better than even what they have in their screenshots here on their website. And uh, it does feel like a better a better uh, a telegram uh, messenger. And the other thing I like about it is it gives you a little more power over how you can organize your contacts. You can pop people into favorite positions so they always remain in one spot. But, you know, if you have four or five people you always are talking to or groups you're always talking to, uh, those kinds of things. And the notifications are better, which is a big thing for me too. So it's called CuteGram. And uh, I don't know, you might want to try it. It is... Uh- uh, it is, there is no form of Telegram I'm not willing to try.
1: I I use the you know the normal uh, desktop application as it is uh, constantly. I have the I've tried the Pigeon plugin, which eh, it's all right. And you've done I the command line Firefox one too, right? Plugin. Say again. You tried the command line version. Yeah, I did the command line. If you want to, if you want to, uh, if you want to explore your inner creeper. I suggest checking out the command line client. It it, it it doesn't give you anything that you don't get on the regular desktop client, but the way that the information is presented to you, things become much more apparent and you can string things together. So, for example, your, your your phone client will show you if somebody is online or when they were last online, but being able to essentially have a log of when that person was online and offline, and if you overlay that with two different people in your contact list, you can see people having conversations. It, it, it's kind of fun, <laughs> yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that too. Kind of way.
0: Yeah, because um, it's just so. It's just, show, and I ran in my GWake terminal. So I could, I'd pop up on GWake and be like, user online, this user online. Oh, they're yeah. reading each other's messages. I see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, one thing I'd really like though is um, Zorak and I in the chat room have been going back and forth. I am, I am on a mission to try to get him on Telegram because I, I've used Telegram as a as the lowest common denominator messaging system, mainly because of the notification controls, I can turn it on and off for, for different people. Mm. And uh, I can't get I can't get Zarok to to sign up. And, and and the reason is is he wants a open source implementation of the server. They published the protocol. So anyone right. could yes. make a telegram server. Yeah. And then you'd obviously have to modify the client to connect to it. But um he says he's fully willing to use uh, the Telegram service, even on their, even on Telegram servers, as long as there was an op- as long as there was a GPL alternative, and there's not, and so I'm waiting for somebody to to kind of come out and make that happen using the Telegram protocol. That would be
0: really cool. Yeah, if somebody could do that, that would be really ideal. I agree, uh, and I think maybe eventually, if Telegram continues to get more and more popular, somebody might be motivated enough to do that. But if you're going to use Telegram, check out Qtgram. It's got better notifications, full drag-and-drop support. It's more compatible with your a desktop environment. It's easier to customize. Uh, it's not crazy to customize, but it's easier to customize. I like the settings better, all that stuff. So it's, it's a pretty nice desktop Linux app, and it's called Qtgram because, well, yes, it's based on Qt, although it's spelled C-U-T-E, if that couldn't be more confusing.
1: And it is Q, at least yeah. stretching from the screen caps.
0: Yeah, and uh, the other nice thing is uh, it... Uh, it does a nice little way of, uh, of handling offline mode. If your internet connection is lost, uh, you can, uh, just using QGram, you know, when you're using QGram, it can fetch your messages from a local database on the device and display them and then forward them when you get online. Like, it does a, it does a pretty good job. It's actually pretty neat. So we're going to talk about Chrome OS in the news this week and maybe what its future li- where its future lies. But that made me think, you know what, uh, let's, let's look at Chrome, or Chrome Mixium this week. Because this may be uh, this may be an island of salvation uh, down the road for Chromebooks. Chromeixium, as you may have guessed on the name, is the simplicity of a Chromebook with the flexibility and stability of wait for it Ubuntu LTS. Chromium Chromeixium puts the web front and center of the user experience, and uh, they do this uh, with some with some interesting technologies, Noah. And I'm going to show you some screenshots here. You probably wouldn't even be able to guess what desktop environment it is by looking at these screenshots. No, I would never know that that looks like Unity. It, no, it's not Unity. <laughs> it's not Unity. See, you've got the bar down here at the bottom. Here, I'll tell you a little bit. Chrome Mixium uh, is, they say, they want, to, uh, they want to recreate the functionality, look, and feel of Google's Chrome OS on a conventional desktop. A modular approach to rebuilding the Chrome Chrome OS desktop that allows us to keep the base system... Now, here's what the base system is based on. Uh, Ubuntu uh, 14.04.01. Chromium web browser has Pepper Flash plugin and OpenBox Window Manager and the Compton Desktop Compositor, Plank dock, LX Panel, and they use Nautilus for files. And most of the apps are GTK3. I'm not going to lie. you're going to have to sell me on this. I'm not seeing it. Uh,
1: so, so, so why would I want to why would I want I, does anyone use Chrome OS because they actually like Chrome OS?
0: Well, uh, so here's what I was thinking, is open box means your resource usage is going to be pretty low. So you get a pretty nice, elegant desktop focused on web applications. It is very simple. You'll, you'll, you start it, it's got Chrome, Gmail, YouTube, Drive, and files. hmm uh-huh. That's all it does, and then it, and then it has a right-click menu, much like, uh, you know, uh, like you'd expect. And it's just a, like a simple, straightforward, lightweight. I, this, looks like, um, this looks like what you install on somebody who has an old laptop. You know, maybe one that has a low resolution like you always talk about. And you put this on there and you give it to them. This is like, instead of them Ooh. having to go buy a Chromebook, you just turn their old computer into a Chromebook. I don't know. Because, you know, because h- here's
1: the thing. With in, uh, with somebody's older laptop, chances are it's going to have a spinning disk. And the $100 you'd spend on a Chromebook will not only get you, uh, you know, a supported OS out of the box, that kind of thing. But it's actually probably going to run faster than than the old computer with
0: with the limited operating system. I
1: don't know. I, I guess I'm just not seeing a, I just, I guess I'm not seeing much of an advantage of that. Well, over. and the
0: the other thing really, the true advantage to that kind of user for a Chrome uh, book and Chrome desktop is the mm-hmm. uh, power wash and, you know, uh, reboot and auto update, like the elegant background seamless updating that makes it so yeah. they don't have to think about it. Uh, the fact that they can hit power wash and they log back in and their data sinks back down and any any way they goobered up the machine is completely taken care of those mm-hmm. are kind of the features of Chrome OS that I think uh, uh really kind of appeal to people so uh they are doing background security updates in chromixium they are doing that part of it as well, but I don't think they have that power wash kind of functionality. here's i guess here's the only
1: thing that that appeals to me that where I can see this is where why NOah is glad this project exists and wants it to continue and that is if Chrome OS becomes the future of the Linux desktop and so that is just what we're left with and the wide-scale deployment of the Linux desktop is largely in Chrome OS. If that ever happens, the next thing I'm going to want to be able to do is install Chrome OS on every computer that I have so I'm using a persistent distro across all my machines and I guess that's where this would come in.
0: Yeah, I think the other way I was looking at it, and we're going to get to this in the news segment, is if Chrome OS goes away in five years and you still have rigs that uh, are Chromebooks... Or you have machines that would make good Chromebooks, uh, this could still be something that sort of takes the original Chrome OS idea forward, but it's an open source desktop.
1: I guess maybe the problem is that I take Chromebooks and turn them into Linux boxes. Yeah, (laughs) right. I might be the wrong person to pitch this to. I guess that's (laughs) probably what it is. That's
0: a good point. That is a good point. All right, Noah, let's do the news. It's the news, and this episode is brought to you by Ting.com. Ting is mobile that makes sense, my mobile service provider. Noah's mobile service provider, pretty much the, almost the whole crew here at JB's mobile service provider. Why? It just once we start to understand it, it really just makes a lot of sense. You only pay for what you use. There's no contract, and there's no termination fee. It's a flat $6 for the line. That's, that's the bottom line right there. And when you go to last.ting.com, you support this show, and you also get $25 off a device, or you get $25 of service credit. That's really nice because the service credit for me, I brought an Evo 4G back in the day, like two years ago when I switched over to Ting, and that $25 service credit more than paid for my first month. And the things that really made me stick around with Ting is like their super, super slick dashboard, really nice, always getting better, and Ting's service itself is always getting better. Since I've been a Ting customer now, they've rolled out GSM services too, so they have CDMA and GSM networks, which is really nice because, you know, I... I have better CDMA coverage in some locations and better GSM coverage in other areas, or in some cases, better data, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can just kind of pick and choose. Or really what made the difference, and I know this made a big difference for Noah too, is it opened up a whole new category of devices that you can now get on Ting. In fact, didn't you just pick up like a super cheap hotspot, Noah? For- I, I, I did. So,
1: I mean, the thing is, we talk all the time about owning your computer, owning your device, that kind of thing. And when you have a device that is locked to a specific carrier... It, it doesn't feel like you own that device. Like It did feel like I owned that device until I was opened up to the world of GSM. Again, I, I had a GSM device a long, long time ago, uh, and I just kind of, I, I don't know what what made me change. I think I worked for a different company, and they gave me a phone, so I canceled it. But the, once Ting opened up GSM, I have started buying devices off of eBay, off of Chinese shops. I bought one when I was in Sydney, Australia, and uh, you just buy unlocked GSM devices, and it's like, it's great because I am not locked to any specific carrier. I'm not I'm not uh, those devices are not on Ting because I can't take them other places. I could take them to AT&T or T-Mobile or wherever. They stay on Ting because I truly like Ting and the the pricing model and the customer service yeah. that I get. You pay for what so, you use. Yeah, and so like the other day or a couple weeks ago rather, I was on eBay, I see a 4G LTE hotspot, 28 bucks free shipping. How are you going to pass that up? That, <laughs> nice. My Jeep now has a dedicated hotspot. So you know that computer you were looking at where you have the little uh, GSM card? Yeah, I got a hotspot in my Jeep. So if you sit inside <laughs> the Jeep,
0: you can use my data. You got That's a dedicated okay. car hotspot. I love it. Yeah. yeah. It was 28 you can, bucks, you and can, it cost me 6 bucks a month to and have it. You can get the $9 SIM. So you just get that, and then you pop it in there, uh, CDMA or GSM. They have a bunch of great devices. They also have um, feature phones, smartphones. Uh, they've got also uh, the Novatel MiFi is back in there, the 5580, just a real nice pocket MiFi device. 100, $121, and then it's just $6 a month pay for what you use. Uh, also, I noticed a couple of other device updates on the uh, Ting page you guys might want to check out. If you like the Apple phones, they got uh, they got deals going right now on the uh, iPhone 5S, which uh, the 5S is it's that, that's that uh, 4, what, 4.7-inch four form factor, which uh, Angela really prefers. And they also have... Uh, They also have the LG G4 on sale, and they just added the M9, the HTC One M9, and the uh, Samsung Galaxy S6 Edge with the nice blue color is back. Lots of really, really, really nice phones in the Tink store. Also, check out their blog. You know, they're working on uh, uh, fiber internet and they have an update on their Fiber Internet Initiative on their blog. Start by going to last.ting.com. Try out their savings calculator. See how much you might save by switching to Ting. Check out their control panel. It is really, really great. And if you have any questions, you can call their enthusiastic support at 1-855-TING-FTW. Last.ting.com. And a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. Okay, Noah. So this next story really blew up over the last few days. It started with some reporting on the Wall Street Journal and then some better reporting by Recode, and it goes a little something like this. Google plans to introduce Android laptops and replace Chrome OS. Starting next year, the company will work with partners to build personal computers that run on Android, according to sources familiar with the company's plans. The Chrome browser and operating systems aren't disappearing. PC makers that produce Chromebooks will be able to choose Chrome still, but they'll now also have a choice of Android, I don't like it. Uh, so this has been, you know, are they going to are they going to merge Chrome OS and Android? Are the two things going to converge? Is one going to replace the other? Why does Google have two operating systems? Well, back in 2009, we even started seeing some rumors and kind of hints of this. Sergey Brin suggested the two operating systems may merge in 2009. The convergence momentum began really when Sundar Pichai took the reins of both operating systems. He leads Chrome OS. And Android, he was promoted to SVP of all products. He pro, he appointed uh, Hiroshi Lockheimer, I believe is how you say his name. And he now runs up directly Android and Chrome OS. So the one guy is running both divisions. The company even gave us another hint. In a recent Nexus event, Google released its first Pixel C that runs on Android. Yeah, you know. Uh, and then in the uh, company's earning calls, uh, Sundar Pichai gave another hint. He said... Uh, mobile as a computing paradigm is eventually going to blend with what we think of as the desktop today. That's what he said in the earnings call, most recent earnings call. Uh, he also says, and I think this is truly the reason why they'd want to do this. Noah, mobile gives us unique opportunities in terms of better understanding users. That's what Pinchai said on earnings call. In other words, yeah. In other words, they're not getting enough data off people on Chromebooks. But but these Android devices, these are walking surveillance tools, and it's much easier to sell ads to Android users and track them. And Chrome Chromebooks are just too private; they're too secure. I guess I don't know if that's what he's actually saying. He says my long-term view on this is uh, compelling, or in fact, even better than the desktop for mobile. But it will take us time to get there, and we're going to be focused on it until we get there. Here's now, the thing. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Android
1: does not ha- has never felt like a really... Really compelling operating system. I I think it's better than a lot of the alternatives, and I think a lot of us jumped on the bandwagon early because it was Linux on a phone, and that was cool. But the reality is, like, if you compare it, if you if you actually look at the user experience in and of itself, there are so many little problems with Android, and largely Chrome OS doesn't seem to be affected by that right now. The experience that the limited, mind you, experience that I've had with Chromebooks is when I click on Chrome, Chrome starts. When I close Chrome, Chrome ends. The the little apps at the bottom. Granted, there are like seven that I can choose from. but they all seem to work moderately well, being that they are basically web apps. Um, And the overall experience I've had, granted, however limited seems to be a lot better than Android. And every other time when a company has tried to combine a mobile operating system and a desktop operating system, it doesn't work. And that's because what works well on a five, a 4.5 inch touchscreen doesn't work very well on a 13 inch laptop with a keyboard and mouse. And what works well on a 13 inch laptop with a keyboard and mouse doesn't necessarily work on a tiny little 4.5 inch touchscreen.
0: Yeah, I wonder exactly what they have in mind. Is it going to be like a Chrome like environment that launches when you hook up a keyboard and monitor? Is it going to be uh, a change of the UI is going to be another launcher. Um, now, here's, here's another wrinkle to this. Uh, Hiroshi Lockenheimer, Lockheimer, who is leading up Chrome OS and Android right now, he tweeted and said, there's a ton of momentum for Chromebooks, and we're very committed to Chrome OS. I just bought two for my kids' schoolwork. So then, later, Jeff Jarvis tweets him, don't want that to change, he said. He said, I, I love my Chromebooks, been using them for years, I don't want that to change. He says, don't worry, every model gets software updates for five years. So when they're saying Chrome OS isn't going away go, going away anytime soon, I think what they're really saying is, well, even if you bought one today, you get five years of support. Hmm. Uh, and that one, this in some ways though, don't you think this makes a lot of sense? Not having to run two operating systems, being able to track your users better, you focus on one OS and really go at it. Uh, and Android, even though Chrome OS has been successful, Android is phenomenally more successful. Um,
1: why? Why is Android successful? Android successful because they write apps for Android, and it's 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 a widely used thing. Those apps are not going to work well
0: on a desktop. I was just thinking in terms of deployment. I mean, now it's it's gone beyond phones. It's on it's on embedded systems and devices, and uh, I, I mean, it really it has become the the largest operating system installed. You know, it is just a massive yeah. it is a massive machine, and there's entire manufacturing lines that standardize their equipment around what runs on Android or not. Um, so, uh, in some ways, I think they're just looking at the scale of the two, and Android is just so f- much further ahead. Plus, it's more in line with collecting data that they want. Uh, and, and here's what here's what, what here's what worries me, Noah. In some ways, I I, I see two possible things. Uh, this means that more applications and web apps and services will likely be available for the general Linux desktop too, if this is successful and more manufacturers get behind it. It sort of forces more things to be platform agnostic. I think that's the good thing for the Linux desktop. To me, though, this really seems like a major competitor to Linux desktop. You make something out there with Android or Chrome OS, and you put it, make it out there for general manufacturers, this almost seems like it's the ubuntu like, big release, the big Google desktop operating system that everybody's been speculating for for decades now, <laughs> for 100 years, it feels like. Uh, I think this might be it, and I think it's going to be... Google might want to accomplish on the general PC platform what they've accomplished in the embedded space. And that is total agnostic general platform domination. And that would be the desktop x86 X class PCs and laptops. Is I think they want to have that kind of they want to have Android-like success on those devices like they have on the ARM-based devices. And so this is their answer to Windows 10 and macOS and the Linux desktop I think. And they're going to focus in on this converged vision and then drop it, and this will be the Google desktop. And uh, I think it may be a bigger competitor for desktop Linux if that's the case. But who really knows?
1: I don't think so. And and so, you know, know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, Microsoft had, tried to take their Windows desktop and put it onto smaller and smaller pocket-sized devices, right? And they did Windows CE. And, and essentially what they found was when you try – and, you know, the original tablets, I don't know if you remember those. It was like a, like a touchscreen that spin around and then it ran Windows, but you had like this little pen that you were supposed to hit the start menu with. And then there was a pop-up keyboard and stuff. And basically – Um, Microsoft found that you can't cram a desktop operating system into a tablet. And I feel what Android's trying to do is they're trying to expand. They're not making a desktop operating system. They're not making a competitive product to compete on the desktop. What they're doing is taking the operating system that already exists on the phone and say, well, let's scale it up and make a couple tweaks and hope it works. I don't
0: know if I agree. I mean, I think for the – it's some major points I do, but I actually think if you look back, you know, they've been hinting at this since 2009 – I Mm -hmm. think they're taking a generational approach to it. I think they are laying down a lot of small intermediary steps that will lead us to this point. Um, I cite for this as an example, I bring to the jury, material design. Uh, which w- is really meant to uh, one standardized, very Google-branded look that works on full screen, tablet applications, small smartphone applications, desktops, web pages, even on iOS. Material design works across all of these different form factors, and they laid that out two years ago. Um, I think since they laid out material design, it was clear that they wanted to take Android beyond smartphones and tablets. I think material design was we take the design concepts on Android, you make them available on the desktop via the web, and and, and then when we're ready, we have this UI that automatically looks great on the desktop scale or on the small phone, tablet, laptop scale. And I'm not saying it's there today, but I think Mm. what they've been doing is they're laying pipe, Noah – they're laying pipe and then they're gonna ram Google Android Chrome OS conglomerate thing through that pipe once all the infrastructure is laid. And so they're getting material design laid down. They're getting this and that all lined up. And over time they'll make they'll bring these two together. And I think I think they're playing one of their longer games here than they traditionally do. I don't think it's like a Microsoft project where this team comes together and this team comes together and they're like, well, let's take this and put it on this and we're going to make a product and we do it in two years. I think they've been working on this literally since 2009 or before. And I think they're going to still, I think it's probably five years till it's complete. I think it's going to be sooner than, I think it'll be sooner than that before we see something. But I think it's going to be five years and it'll probably sunset nicely with that Chrome OS. Well, I'll so, tell you what
1: lends credence to what you're saying is that I have I have even in the last like two years I have seen a tremendous amount of people that work for a company that have given up their laptops for tablets. Um, we just did a deployment out at a out at a, a rather large organization, um, and their sales team um, they had previously always had laptops, and we went through the last iteration, and they're no longer using laptops. Now they're using tablets, um, and and the reason for that is the the one of the lead sales girls had. A uh, a Samsung S4, and she's like, they have the, this in tablet version. Could we just get these because all my apps run on here, and I can do the, you know, my meeting app and all that other stuff is is all running on Android. And so there is a there is a generation of people that prefer to compute on on tablets. And I suppose yeah. if you take away and and just kind of substitute and say, well. It's nice to work on a tablet, but every so often I need to peck out an email, and that's a pain on a touchscreen. So right. let's put a keyboard there, and let's put. I guess I can kind of see how well, we look get at,
0: there. Yeah, well, look at uh, Surface Book just came out, iPad Pro's right. coming out. They both right. all you know keyboards. Here's something I noticed, Noah. So you're talking that's kind of on the younger end. My last big client before I went full time doing JB, mm-hmm. they they had a proprietary Internet Explorer ActiveX application that was uh, used for construction in the state of Washington and um to bid on projects and things like that and like a just a ton of bricks falling on them all of a sudden they had all of these um site inspectors and house builders and bridge builders you know these construction guys that have been in the business for 30 40 years that were using and i'm not even joking noah like Some of them had, like, old huge compact laptops, you know, like, the 486, Mm -hmm. like, huge things. And a lot of them had the Intel Pentiums running, like, some of them had 95 and 98. A lot of them had, like, XP first versions, like, really old stuff, all using anything that would basically run IE, like, 4 or above. It was really crazy. Like, it was disgusting. And when they decided to replace these old laptops as they died, like, a crazy amount of them went right to tablets. So much so that this client was caught completely flat-footed by this and did not have a site that worked with a growing, growing, growing portion of their user base at a really, really rapid pace. And one of the things that was fascinating about this is it wasn't a coordinated thing. It was all different contractors and builders and state employees and all different divisions and departments of walks of life not coordinated – all that just like they bought in when they needed to get online to be able to do their job planning. They bought mm-hmm. their equipment and they just ran it into the ground in their vehicles and out on the job sites and stuff like that. They just ran it into the ground and then they just they just quantum leapfrogged to the next category of technology. They just they bypassed ultrabooks and netbooks and Chrome. And they just bypassed all of that and it went white right, right to tablets. And this client had to rebuild this ActiveX uh, application in a tablet compatible uh form and they didn't have they didn't have any div- tablets on in their office they didn't have a, hardly anybody had an iOS device except for like an mm-hmm. iPhone like it was it was for them a total disaster so they brought in people to help like and i i was responsible for moving the back end infrastructure over to the new system and for them it was all of these people in their towards you know the the golden years of their career mm-hmm. that had, were just didn't want to hassle with didn't want to hassle with all the computer stuff. They'd been avoiding it for years because they just needed to go on this website and to get their jobs. And then all of a sudden, you know, they started replacing them one on one and they just got into a, a, a massive, massive amount of them where they had to respond. And this was really before Chromebooks were really a thing. But mm-hmm. a lot of them, a lot of them got like keyboard accessories and stands and stuff like that and, and cases and they just put them in these monster like cases and stuff. So I, I think if you take something like a Chromebook and you put Android on it, and has got, like you were saying, all of the apps that they use because they're mm-hmm. not going to want a third operating system. They're not going to want their desktop right. operating system, their tablet, op- their phone operating system, and their Chromebook. Yep. Op- I mean, this just doesn't work. You want yep. the same apps. If you buy something from the Play Store on one Google device, you want it from the Play Store on another Google device.
1: The um, I travel a lot, and I'd say better than 80% of all tablets I see are in cases with included keyboards. Um, I rarely, and I mean rarely see somebody sitting in the traditional portrait mode touching stuff on on their tablet. I they casually, yes, you know, inside of coffee shops and stuff like that all the time. Restaurants absolutely, but like when I see business professionals that are traveling that so in other words people that are being issued those or that are using those as their primary computing device, they almost always have you know a keyboard attached and you know you have speculated for a while that um that Apple is eventually going to combine um the, the MacBook series and the, and the oh, iPad series. Oh, I don't series. know. I think it'd be crazy if they do it. I don't know if they're actually going to do it. Well, it's it goes along the same concept though, right? That as people prefer, I saw, you know, Ubiquity when I was out at uh, at Global Vision, Ubiquity has a desktop phone, a CEO's phone that runs Android. So it has, you you hit the dialer app, you dial on a touchscreen, you hit the green button to send. and the whole reason Ubiquity released that phone, I'm told anyway, is because you have this generation of people that just expect everything to work like a tablet. And if that becomes the case, uh, stuff like this seems to make a lot of sense then, I guess. But I stand by what I said originally, that I just don't think you're ever going to get a really compelling desktop interface um, built up from a phone operating system. We'd have
0: to see how they manage that interface and if it's like a VM for Chrome or something. All right, let's shift gears and go into a community story. Enough corporate stuff. Uh, This one's interesting because uh, this raised something that's been bubbling in the back of my mind now uh, for, well, for almost a... Maybe two years. I'm not quite sure how long this transition happened, but I'll get into this. So I wanted to make mention of uh, Kevin Koffler, who is an Italian, who lives in Australia. He was uh, one of the KDE maintainers uh, for Fedora, and he's stepping down. He says, in recent times, I've been increasingly unable and unwilling to adequately co-maintain a huge set of packages known as the KDE software compilation. Uh, And he goes on a little bit into that, about how many freaking packages it is. But that's not actually what I wanted to get into. I want to get into this point, because this... Put into words something that's been rattling around the back of my head, like I said. He says he's unwilling to continue because the way the Fedora project has been treating KDE since Fedora 21, when the Fedora.next initiative was introduced. It makes me feel like a second-class citizen in the Fedora community. After years of fighting for equal treatment of KDE and Fedora, Fedora Fedora.next with its Fedora is now more focused, in parentheses, on GNOME, message was a major setback and a huge deployment. Uh, And I actually completely agree since, uh, since Fedora.next, it really does seem like Fedora is all in on, on GNOME. And I've wondered if the uh, KDE contributors and maintainers had been feeling like that. No, you've recently gotten some more exposure to KDE. We're about to review Fedora next week, the new release. Uh, do you have any thoughts on if Fedora, to you? Does it, does it feel like it's maybe reduced its focus on KDE and it's really just gone all in on GNOME? So I I'm I have never I, I mean I've used KDE for the
1: past couple you know the past couple of reviews on on a few distros but really I've never used KDE on Fedora and I think that a that you know a distro is there's always going to be a prevalent desktop I think um and that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing and it's not a pejorative to the desktop that Actually I stop
0: let me stop you right there. I think it's a good thing. I think if you don't I think you just make a hot mess. If you don't focus on I mean everybody loves to have everything. Yeah. I get that. Let well, the spins take care of that. I think you focus on one desktop and you do a really damn good job. And I think it's fooling yourself if you think you, how can you possibly claim focusing on multiple things that do the same exact thing and you could do the best version of each of those things? It's just uh, it's so humanly the, not possible. The,
1: the argument is going to be that there are go- there's going to be the KDE team and the GNOME team and the LXDE team and the other 50 yeah. desktops that we forget about the people in hate mail about. But the uh, and then each team is supposed to, you know, make their you know distro and then at the end you have a, a totally level thing. But the reality is that most of the people that I see using Fedora and if you go into Red Hat you'll see a lot of them. Mm-hmm. They're all using GNOME. They're all using Gnome. I didn't see a single KDE box. And again, I'm not ragging on KDE. I'm sure it's a great desktop environment. I'm sure it's great on Fedora. But if that's the case, guess who is getting all of the bug fixes. Guess where all the feedback is coming from and guess where they're going to focus their time on. Right, yeah. yeah, I think it is uh, GNOME heavy and and I agree with you. I think it's a good thing and uh, I'll go one step further and say that I think that when you take a specific distro and it pairs with a specific desktop and concentrates a lot of effort on that, I think what you wind up with is a really high-polished, Uh, product, and then a bunch of other things that that work acceptable if you
0: absolutely insist on using something other than the quote-unquote norm. Yeah, and otherwise you don't have a competitive product. He says also the uh, Fedora 23 KDE spin is easily the worst KDE spin ever released. Firefox, a non-KDE and even non-QT application, is the default browser. It does not integrate into Plasma desktop in any way. Due to an oversight, Dr. Conky is missing, and thus, ABRT, another non-KDE application, is the default crash handler. ABRT reports all of the crashes uh, to us downstream packages instead of upstream where the crash reports belong. And the experience has shown that the ABRT file and forget or fire and forget reports are unwilling to upstream the bug reports manually, even if they read our replies at all. It says both of these are no complete no goes for me. They're not acceptable. The Firefox fiasco was a deliberate decision, and the ABRT fiasco could have been avoided if Dr. Conkey had not been made optional against my recommendation. As a result, I hereby am stepping down from the SIG group and from the co-maintainership of the KDSC packages. And there, I wanted to cover this because this kind of thing, it's something that kind of can sometimes happen in the, in the background uh, for these distributions that we use a lot and love a lot. And uh, I wonder, too, if maybe once, uh, maybe once Kevin uh, sort of has some time down, if maybe he'll just uh, start working upstream directly with KDE. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's kind of too bad, but, you know, uh, I, uh, I, I, think it does, I think it gives us the chance to say, both Noah and I feel, that uh, there, are, there are other ways to get KDE on Fedora. And I actually don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for a project to focus on one thing. Now, they might argue that they're not. I don't know, but I actually think they should be. Just like, I think it makes sense that Ubuntu focuses on Unity, and then you let the flavors focus on the different versions of that. I think that works mm-hmm. a lot better. All right, Noah, so uh, let's talk really quickly before we get into the train wreck of the week. Uh, The Tor project has launched an encrypted anonymous chat app. So we were talking about Telegram earlier. Well, how about a Tor chat program? Eh, Not for me, but I'll tell you a little bit about it. The Tor project says Instabird was chosen as it transports protocol as it's written in memory-safe language like JavaScript. It already supports a number of languages. Instabird is an open-source messaging client that I've linked in the uh, show notes. Uh, And it also supports... Uh, off the record, uh, chat, uh, cryptographic protocol support, and Tor has been new features in the beta message, which sends the messages over the Tor network. Another secure chat program by the Tor folks. For me, something about the Tor name now just kind of doesn't feel super secure anymore, and I'm just not jumping out of my pants to go try out a Tor chat. Maybe I should be since I'm using Telegram, but uh, for me... Not super compelling. The nice thing about this, though, is because it's using Instabird, it also supports uh, XMPP, IRC, Google Talk, Facebook Chat, Twitter, Yahoo, and others, all through the beta client. So you get all your regular messaging clients, and you get that Tor goodness as well. Might be nice for you, Noah, and all those uh, secret communiques you have to. do. <laughs> all the uh, all
1: those uh, quote unquote picks.
0: Yeah. All right. So uh, here is the train wreck of the week. Uh, this didn't even. I was hoping by the time we went live, we'd have something to show you. Twitch installs Arch Linux, a cooperative text-based horror game, and well, it's already been shut down. The idea was kind of neat, though, kind of like when uh, Twitch played Pokemon. Everybody get, you know, everybody gets logged in, and they all try to install Arch at the same time. Now, how do you suppose that went, Noah? How do you suppose that turned out? Uh, well. Uh, it's the internet
1: so not well <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> there's going to yeah. be a lot but here's the thing i think that it's it was it's a cool idea i mean i know that the I do the, too. The, the reaction from the community has largely been negative like, yeah what did you the, expect yeah well not only that but like you have you have people that uh, that are like this is the dumbest thing ever and i can't believe anyone wastes their time and and what like everyone compares it to something stupid but you know the thing is if i had more time if i wasn't in the middle of a move and and in middle of like 13 other projects right now I would sit down and do that. I'd be like, yeah, me let me see if I can find a creative way to start installing something while somebody else is trying to erase the hard drive every 30 yeah. seconds. And if you think about it, if you if you compete in those kind of environments and kind of play with that kind of stuff, you're going to be better at your craft.
0: I agree. I, I Now, here's what happened. Uh, a friggin', you know, somebody tried to launch a friggin' botnet, even though they tried to firewall it off and stuff like that. What they really need to do is completely isolate. Here's what I think they should do. Is so. Here's, I'll tell you what happened, then I'll tell you what I think they should do. So somebody set up a botnet. You know, they got in there. They were able to get command in there and get, you know, they enough machines to to override the uh, to override the input. In fact, I have a screenshot in the show notes where you can see everybody trying to stop it, but the botnet was just was too intense. And so they managed to try to get in there, start DHCP, and then ping uh, Google's DNS. And because the botnet was just totally jamming it up, they shut it down. They say, "Yep, it was pretty disappointing to us." This is on a at Twitch installs tweet. We were keeping it running as long as we felt comfortable to do so, but due to our lack of preparation for an actual attack, we decided to cut it off where it was, obviously the majority of voting too perfectly on actions that were turning malicious because he had a botnet that was doing that. At this point, we are not sure how we are going to be continuing this with the project. Now, here's what I think they should do. You put it inside a VM, and then you put on the same VM network all the Arch repositories, all the tools that you would need to install, and then you completely disconnect those things from the Internet, no connection to the Internet at all, and then you use an IPKVM-like type connection software, to get to use console access so instead of letting ssh in instead of th- that kind of stuff just console access through an ipkvm or like virtual box remote desktop or whatever you implement you know if it's if it's uh, if it's a kvm there's lots of solutions there you could do that have a have a machine with all the repositories and software tools you need on it's it's on a mirror that's on the same virtual private network you could talk to the two machines could talk to each other but there's no way this thing could run an attack against somebody else on the net or something like that. And I guess part of their issue too is you know how to how to manage flooding the uh, the vote the vote system to manage it. But I actually agree with you. Know I was really looking. I was kind of hoping we could tune in and see how far they'd gotten this morning. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to yeah. kick off uh, Saturday, October 31st at 4 p.m. Eastern. Um, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, it did not work out for them. Kind of funny though. All right, so a couple of big releases next week. You guys should probably know about before we get out of the news segment. Uh, next, uh, let's see, Let's see. I should probably do these in order because Fedora comes out first. On uh, November 3rd, Fedora 23 will be released. So that is going to be on Tuesday. On Tuesday of the week that we're recording, Fedora 23 comes out. You can get it at getfedora.org at 10 a.m. Eastern is the plan, if all goes as planned. And then on Wednesday, OpenSUSE 42.1 Leap is out. That'll be on November 4th. And uh, they're going to announce it officially at SeussCon in Amsterdam, and it'll be available for download online. Remember, that ships with KDE Plasma 5.4.2 and GNOME 3.16, which is a little bit older, but still quite nice. So two big releases coming out this week, kind of a fun week. And so uh, since we just looked at uh, OpenSUSE Leap recently, you can go catch our review on that. We're going to do our Fedora 23 review next week, and uh, you can tune in for that and join us live. Noah, any thoughts on any of these things before we wrap up the news segment?
1: I will be watching my... I will be riveted to my computer uh, waiting for the next release of Fedora to come up.
0: I am always really curious to hear your thoughts on a Fedora release in particular. So, I am actually... I am. Actually, well, you're in luck, because I'm an expert in my opinion. So. <laughs> and I, I never know what I'm going to think of a Fedora release. I never know. Sometimes I'm just totally super impressed, and sometimes, uh, well... I'm not. Uh, so we'll see. That'll be next week on The Big Show. All right, Noah, that's all the news for this week. It is time to witness Noah climb 350 feet in the air for this week's interview of the Linux Action Show and probably risk his life, but first I want to tell you about our segment sponsor, System76. They have machines designed to run Linux, and this week I want to look at this RX Pro. I'm not even sure how you say it. O-R-Y-X. I Y X. I don't. I honestly am so excited about it. I haven't even thought to care. It is obviously a total bonobo killer. Uh, check this thing out. Aluminum alloy construction. It's, it's, here's how thin it is. It is, as, it is the thickness of the ethernet port. It has in, uh, NVIDIA GeForce GPUs, you can get it in 15-inch or 17-inch uh, screens. 64 gigabytes of RAM. What I am freaking out about is it is all, all of the components, including you can get it with an IPS monitor with G-Sync, uh, all of these items are like my bonobo Brought up two generations or three generations, actually, or maybe even four generations, because these are Skylake processors. And uh, way thinner. And uh, and built out of aluminum. Uh, This looks incredible. Uh, I really am excited about this. It has a 970 or 980 NVIDIA GPUs you can get in this bad Mama jamma. So serious gaming potential. IPS display is a big one for me, too. Uh, And it also has the same Onkyo speaker system that my bonobo has that i really have been impressed with the bonobo has really great speakers and uh HDMI out. And for me, the big kicker is, this sounds kind of funny, but uh, I, because of production reasons, have to use a 1080p screen. And so like my XPS laptop, you would never see me use my XPS laptop in studio on the Linux Action Show, because I have no way to hook that up to show the screen because the resolutions don't match up and high DPI is a mess and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So 1080p, you can get different stuff. With, you can look at the different screen options. Uh, but for me, the 1080p o- option would be perfect. Uh, and also has an external AC adapter. I could probably get. To. Oh, oh, oh! That was the other thing, Noah. That was the other thing. You can get it with a DC adapter. You can get it with a DC adapter. It is no re- kidding. Yeah, this is. This I don't so not know. Not only when. is it the perfect studio machine,
1: it's the perfect rover machine
0: as well. Yeah, this is exactly right. And see what what happens now. And this doesn't. This doesn't sound like a big problem. Probably most people are like, oh, poor Chris. But what happens right now is I do a lot of pre-show prep on the XPS, and then I come back into the studio and I try to reset all up on on the Bonobo. But I often don't have enough time because I'm you know, I'm commuting in, getting in here, trying to get it all set up. And so I do all the work on one computer and I have to recreate it on the other computer. It would be really nice to have a machine that works in the studio that's super powerful because the XPS also isn't very powerful for me. It's only a dual core, even though they call it an i7. Uh, I would love to be able to have a really nice machine that I could do all the VMs on, do all the stuff I need, set it up from the rover. And then when I get in studio, I hook it up and it's ready to present. And I think the thinness of this is going to be... Look at that. There's the Ethernet port. It's about as thick you know, as the Ethernet port. Isn't that incredible?
1: You know, I'll, t- I'll tell you something else too, and this doesn't matter. I know this doesn't matter to a lot of people because they're part of this new confangled. I like everything looking pretty instead of being functional crap. But the have you noticed that the touchpad has? It's not one of those stupid clickpad crap. It's that it actual has buttons on it. Yes. You see that? Yes. 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 I don't like clickpads. Let me say that again. It's a good touchpad. I hate. Clickpads.
0: Yeah. and you know they spend Was extra time on making sure those touchpads work damn good. And if they don't work perfect under Linux, they'll even ship special software to make it happen. Uh, I really like this rig, and it, and when I, by the way, when I use the term thin, in case you're just listening, it's it's not like uh, it's not like a, like a razor like uh, envelope thin. It is incredibly thin for the amount. I mean, Nvidia 970 GPU, 32 gigabytes of RAM, three hard drives in this thing, Core i7 processors a
1: workstation it's a mobile workstation that is extraordinarily thin it's paper thin for a mobile workstation
0: yeah i i am super excited 64 about this Sixty four gigabytes of ram yeah we're going to be out there uh looking at more of our sky <sighs> stuff uh in the second week of november i think on the 11th and 12th or something like that so uh, that should be really exciting and you guys will hear more about it in the show so also Noah, i'm really looking forward to this because you had a chance to travel out and chat with a wireless isp where did you head to get this interview because this is pretty neat Yeah, so uh,
1: Zach Underwood, uh, who I'm extraordinarily proud to call a friend, he's a super nice guy and and, and exceptionally smart when it comes to networking, specifically wireless networking. He invited us out to Greenville, South Carolina to come take a look at their headquarters where they provide internet wirelessly to customers all the way around Greenville, South Carolina. Cool. Let's take a look. Every year, Jupiter Broadcasting has been to Southeast Linux Fest. We've had a great time. A large part of that is due to the stellar internet connection provided by Global Vision. This is in part due to one of their senior technicians, Zach Underwood. Zach has not only been paramount in providing solid, reliable internet for the conference, but has been extraordinarily accommodating in providing us with the demands of mobile broadcasting so that we can bring you uninterrupted video streaming coverage of self each year. After self-wrapped last year, Zach extended us an invitation to come on down to Greenville, South Carolina to visit Global Vision's headquarters, where it turns out in addition to providing internet to Linux conferences, they run a wireless ISP that serves customers all around the area. Zach and I share a fanboyism for Ubiquiti Equipment, and he takes us on a tour to show us how they use Ubiquiti Equipment to run their company.
2: So um, this is um, this building actually used to be a um, a auction house for auto, um, for vehicles. So this this is a uh, was a garage bay where they did inspections on the vehicles themselves. We've cut we kept the garage bay door, um, which makes for e- so we can accept pallets of equipment. Um, but this is our primary storage location for all of our wireless equipment. Um, we got you know a couple thousand dollars worth of ubiquity inventory at this point, and um, even some new stuff. Um, sitting on the desk right there is one of their new AC access points that they just released uh, less than a month ago. Um, um, it is um, it's a dual-band uh, wireless AC, and it's, um, its MSRP is less than 100 bucks. Wow. Um, and, let's see. All right, so this, this, this is also another garage bay. Um, we use this again for storage. This is more the construction stuff. Um, sometimes we have to fabricate mounts for the wireless equipment. We also um, got a huge stack of servers that we're trying. To, we're going to be getting rid of. These are all old old. Um, we also keep all of our tower climbing stuff um, in here, um, including um, all the harnesses, all the ropes, um, and even some of the wireless antennas. You want to uh, do? We'll talk about those. Sure. Which side do you want? Whatever. Um, so this is um, this is what we use for backhaul. Um, this is a uh, 30 dB dish on this. So this is a two foot dish. Um, this is five gigahertz. And the particular radio that we have is is actually a newer radio. This is the um, Airfiber 5x. Um, it is 5 gigahertz. It's connectorized, so we can connect it to our own antennas. Um, and the speed is um, it is half duplex, but it has a duty cycle. So you can do like a 75% duty cycle. Mm-hmm. So that means 75% of the airtime will be devoted to one way of the traffic. So we are we have a lot of download traffic. So we, we can basically f- um, focus that in a direction so that to optimize our download speeds. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing, um, I um, we haven't we haven't installed and speed checked it yet, but um, theoretically it should be more than 200 megs. And uh, so this is what we use for doing um, client access. So these are sectors. Um, And this particular insulation is actually going to go up on a water tank. On the very top of the water tank, we're going to mount a pipe. And this whole assembly of four antennas, four antennas and radios, will actually get dropped right on the pipe. And and this will, um, through four antennas, each at 120 degrees, um, will give us 360 degrees coverage. I know, that's, I know that's a little overlap, but we do that because when you're on the side of an antenna, you can, um, your signal strength would be lower. So we do do a little bit of overlap to maintain a good coverage. So for being a, for being a nine, per, nine employee office, we have a surprisingly large amount of networking here. Um, first we bring in the um, internet wireless, which comes in off of one of these cables. It then um, brings into a 48-port switch, which is almost filled. Um, this, this top three-com switch is actually our PoE switch that we power all the phones. Um, and when, when we spec the cabling for this office, we ran two cable drops to every desk, one for a phone, one for the computer, and the phone would do PoE. Um, then it all comes back into here, Um, where we have the cabling, all nice and neat, comes into punch blocks. uh...
1: The Network Operations Center, or the NOC as it's commonly referred to, is a central location below the towers where all the networking equipment and servers are stored. Because they have extra space, Global Vision actually rents some of the server space out to other clients that have needs to house servers inside of racks or actually rent the servers themselves
2: so um what don't i do uh since goldvision is a small company we um no one has uh, just one job duty um i do um the network administration i do server administration i do tower work um, i do cabling i do site surveys i basically do anything that's needed okay and we're in your data center right now yeah uh, so this is what we call data center. Um, it, it, anyone who actually worked in a data center might laugh, but th- this is not bad for our for our size company. Um, we got several racks around here that are not in use because we have downsized through virtualization. Um, but uh, here's our main teleco rack. Um, we have fiber coming in from other providers. Uh, so these are two other providers that are in the building with us. We have fiber that comes from the roof. Um, we have our PoE switch and Um, Here we got different provider equipment. This is AT&T, AT&T, even some T1 equipment. All right, and so um, here we just have some um, customer equipment. Um, And one thing we started getting better at doing is um, all of our UPSs are now managed through SNMP. So um, they run a test every every two weeks, a self-test. And and that, that basically tests the batteries to carry load. And if anything's wrong, it sends us an email that says, hey, you need to check your batteries. And so we'll come up here, we'll place the batteries. Okay. Um, uh, this blue cabinet is a, one of the satellite providers. Um, so what happens is when you watch um, your local station, so your ABC, your NBC, your CBS, your Fox, um, local stations, they actually record it over the air uh, off of antennas, um, and then the, the cabinet then um, encodes that into, a, into an IP stream that's then sent via fiber to um, over where it's then transmitted up to the satellite so that it can uh, come back down to your satellite dish. Okay. Um, we just have various more customer equipment. Um, this one's actually, ne- um, these next two cabinets are actually our cabinets. Um, right here, we have our Observium box. This is a um, CentOS box running Observion, which is a semi-open source project. They do the um, open core freemium type model. Um, and we have about three to 400 devices that it pulls every five minutes. And right now, it can pull every device um, network-wide in about two minutes. Wow. Um, and so... But if that ever goes above five minutes, we can start having data loss. So we have to make sure we, I like it to be under four minutes. And
3: how many devices network wide are
2: there? Um, So there's about three to four hundred. It's been a few days since I've checked. Wow, that's
3: crazy.
2: Um, And so um, also in this cabinet, we have um, our, uh, the software that we use to back up our VMware cluster, VRanger. Um, We also got a couple storage boxes, and then we have a very large UPS down there. Um, That is a a 5,000 VA or volt amp, um, which then powers all of the equipment in our next rack. This is our, this is the core of the network. Um, Here we have a couple routers. Um, We also have the back of our core switch, which uh, we stack. So these are stacking cables that make two physical switches, one logical switch. And each stacking cable there's two stacking cables. each cable is capable of 10 gigabits. so there's, there's 20 gigabits between switches for data sharing um, here um, these two um, only two of these um, are actually powered up and active and they are um, they are routers. Um, they're debian-based routers that are, um, we use an OS called Viata. and so it, it runs Debian at its core um, and then these these newer HP servers are our VMware stack. So we run three VMware 5.5 servers, um, and then we have a SAN down here. Um, in, in almost three years, we've had zero downtime. Wow. Um, you have some Linux VMs on that. Track. Oh, yeah. We, um, we only have about three Windows VMs and about 30 Linux VMs. And, The vast majority of them are some type of RPM based. So either rail or CentOS. Okay,
3: you and I have the same page on that one.
2: Um, So here, here is the back of, Hold on. Here's the back, the back of the rack. So here's the switches. Um, Here's some fiber coming in from different floors. So we have another floor with a switch that we connect via fiber. Um, and then um, here's the back of the routers. One thing that we do that I think is kind of unique in the industry is we actually run, we don't run an A-B system. We run a wall power and a battery power. Okay. So we have two labels here. We have a wall power label down here uh-huh. and a battery power. The wall literally just plugs straight into an electrical outlet under the floor. Okay. The battery gets plugged into the UPS. And since most servers have two power supplies, we put one power supply on the UPS mm-hmm one on the wall power. And so if we need to do maintenance for the UPS, like take it completely offline, like have to physically swap the unit, not everything has to get powered off because it, it, the stuff would, would continue to be powered on the second power supply off of the wall power. That makes sense. And then uh, down here, here is our fiber channel switch. We run a eight gig fiber channel switch. It runs um, to... Um, So each cable is running at 8 gigabits, and to each server we run two of those for redundancy. So we have a total of 16 gigabits. Wow. Um, One thing also, we also run managed PDUs. So this is actually a network-connected power distribution unit. So we can remotely reboot a power port. We can also get monitoring of uh, power usage per port. So, it's a great way to track and keep track of everything, and um, also if we need to do remote reboots.
1: For those of you that may not be familiar with a wireless ISP or WISP, they are an internet service provider that uses a wireless infrastructure to provide internet to their customers. A large internet pipe is brought into a central location, where it is then sent wirelessly to their respective towers and ultimately out to client locations. Ubiquity equipment here is powered by BusyBox, a distro of Linux specifically geared towards appliance-based use. Before we can go up on a tower and take a look at the physical equipment, not to mention the views, I spend a few minutes getting safety briefed.
2: All right, so um, in tower climbing, uh, certain strengths are very important. Um, this is actually a sling, um, so- it Looks yeah. like a shoelace. It, it kind of does. The thickness does kind of look like a shoelace. Um, But uh, you can use this for rigging. So we use it for rigging because our equipment is kind of light. But you can also use it for like an anchor. So you can wrap it around something and now it's an anchor. So that probably supports like 20, 30 pounds. Yeah, yeah, 20, 30 pounds, no. Um, This is actually rated in this configuration for 5,000 pounds.
3: 5,000 pounds?
2: Yes. The shoelace will support 5,000 pounds? Yes, so I I could pull a pickup truck with another pickup truck hitch to hitch with this. Wow. Yes. Um, the next is, in tower climbing, we use a lot of carabiners for connecting different stuff. Here is the older, mo- or here's an older model that we have. It's an all steel model. Here is an aluminum model. Jeez. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, there's a little bit of weight difference. And
3: these are rated for the exact same, uh, the exact same uh, amount, of,
2: amount of force they can hold the same amount? Yeah, they're both rated for 5,000 pounds. Um, wow. and, and this orientation, so this load weight straight down is 5,000 pounds. Um, and this orientation against the gate is only 3,600 pounds. And with it open oh. like this, it's like 2,000 pounds. Wow. And all of the, um, per OSHA regulations, all the carabiners that we use for, for life-saving equipment must be double action. So it takes two actions to open it. In this case, twist, and then you can open it. Okay. And also for um, and the other requirement is they have to be self-locking. So when you let go, it automatically locks. And in, in recreational work like mountain climbing and rock climbing that you do recreationally, it is permissible to have a self-closing but non-locking one. In a professional environment, that is not allowed. Okay. Um, all of the safety equipment that we use. has a minimum of 5,000 pound rating. Um, Here's one of the anchors that we use. Um, What we'll do is, if if we need to anchor like a rope or something, Mm -hmm. we'll put it around part of the tower Mm -hmm. and and, uh, this orientation, and now we can tighten it and hook our rope right here. Mm -hmm. And this will, this again is rated for 5,000 pounds. Now, I don't know about you guys down here in South
3: Carolina, but I don't weigh 5,000 pounds and I don't know anyone that does. Why is it that we, why is it that you guys
2: have equipment that's rated for 5,000 pounds? So it's not just your body weight. Um, part of it is, is because the safety equipment that we use uh-huh. has a fall distance. Okay. Um, this is actually a six foot lanyard. Okay. And so when, when this is anchored, say um, it is on your harness, um, so it'd be on your harness right between your shoulder blades and it is anchored to the tower at your feet, roughly your feet. So if you fall, you're, you're now gonna fall, let's say, to, from the distance between your back and your feet, let's say five feet. Then, this is a six foot apparatus, so you're gonna fall another six feet before the safety equipment even kicks in. Then, you're gonna fall another three feet before this safety equipment will bring you to a stop. So your feet can now be you know, 15, 20 feet below your anchor point, and when, When that anchor point gets stressed from you falling, it can uh, um, it can observe uh, it can um, do an impact a very high impact load. And so the the five thousand mark is basically is really it only gives about a thousand pound um, impact on the anchor. But Mm -hmm. that five thousand is a buffer zone, a safety zone, a margin factor, Um, and and the ropes that we have. Right here, this is a half-inch um, mm-hmm. double-braid rope, um, and it's rated for a 10,000-pound dra- um, break strength. Wow. Um, now, you told me earlier that um, a knot will actually
3: negatively affect the rope's ability to hold a certain amount of strength.
2: Yep. So a rope, when a rope is rated for a particular strength, it's rated in a straight line. Um, but when you add knots it will basically degrade the strength of the rope by a certain percent based on the type of knot. So that's why what's nice about using these ropes is because they got a 5, or 10,000 pound rating, even when we put a knot, we could still stay at or above that 5,000 mark. Now, does that persistently degrade the rope or is that just for the duration of the knot? So just the duration of the knot. So, so in this particular scenario, I don't know the exact percentages, but this particular knot will degrade the strength of this um, entire assembly by a certain percent of its total strength. Okay. Um, and um, per OSHA regulations, um, the anchors that we use for um, for our y lanyard right here for fall protection, um, the actual specification says, if you believe it can hold a pickup truck, 5,000 pounds, then it is safe to, um, it is safe to use as an anchor. During my training, he kept stressing, um, he kept asking, look at that, look at that particular spot. Could you hang an F-150 off of that particular spot? If, if, if you don't feel comfortable hanging a, a pickup truck off of that spot, then that's, then you shouldn't feel comfortable putting your life and anchoring to that location. Mm-hmm. Um, and Doing climbing in a professional environment we have to use full-body harnesses so that it's over this over the shoulder straps with leg straps Um, this is required and and, um, Recreational climbing it is okay to get away with just the waist But in in professional climbing you have to use a full-body harness Um, If you're gonna be spending a lot of time Hanging in a harness this metal seat is 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 a godsend because basically what it does is when you go to position or basically stop at a location, you'll hook into these D rings, and that hooks to the seat. So when you go to lean back, you actually put your weight on your butt and not your back or your shoulders or even your feet. So it basically helps transfer your weight to a more of a sitting position. Okay. Um, and also, every time when you're on a tower, hard hat is required. The um, um, at one point, um, the, deaths, the, the deaths in the tower industry were getting really bad. So um, the OSHA, or OSHA's director basically said, told his field agents that if he, if he saw anyone doing work on a tower, pull over on the side of the road, get their get their DSLR with a long lens on it, and take pictures of everything they could. And basically, they'll go then those agents would go back to the field office, give it over to a specialist, and the specialist will then groom the pictures for violations and will basically mail violations to the to the company of various things. And a hard hat could be a $7,000 violation. Wow. So simply not having the hard hat on could be a huge violation. Um, also, in towers, we, so, so, sometimes our towers are not the best maintained on the ground um, as far as um, bugs and um, grass and such. So we always keep a nice bottle of hornet and wasp spray uh, because we have rolled up on sites and um, at, uh, maybe on a, on the, between two pieces of equipment, two boxes, there'll be a Yellow Jackets nest. And the only way to safely climb that tower at that point is to take care of the Yellow Jackets that's why we keep a can of this. Just juice them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another concept that is very important is, um, particularly if you work, if you do any work with uh, with broadcast equipment, uh, this is called um, lockout/tagout. So basically, what happens is is anyone who's on the tower would basically get a lock and key that they would put a re- this device would then go around the power supply for that tower. Um, so, like like for a radio station, this device would go around the breaker that services power to the uh, transmitter, because if the transmitter gets turned on while you're on the tower, you can basically be microwaved on the tower. So, this basically prevents someone else from coming along going, this breaker shouldn't be off, and turning the breaker back on. Mm-hmm. And so, by having the tower climber have one of the keys to the lock, because this, this particular unit will hold six locks, So every person on the tower will get their own lock, Mm -hmm. including someone on the ground. So if the person on the tower is still on the tower, that lock is still there. So as a rule, you do not cut locks on lockout, tagout. So the only way for that equipment to get turned back on is if the person comes down off the tower and back to safety, and then will unlock the device for you. How about those uh, three foot? um, Yeah. So um, these are three-foot shock lanyards. Um, we use these when we're on a rope grab. So a rope grab is basically a safety mechanism that we put on the rope itself that will act as the backup safety mechanism. So these, um, are is a three-foot shock pack. So this, and its normal configuration is three feet. But when it when it gets deployed in a fall situation, I believe it's five feet is what these will grow to, and you can see all the all the um, elastic parts are um, contained in this bag. So this just rips off. This yes. the sewing will rip, and then this expands out. Yep, Stop. yep. And and this is this is a one-time use application. So if this is ever deployed, you trash it, throw it away. It cannot be trusted again. Okay. So um, this is our equipment. Um, it changes based on what the current technology is, what's been released, what our current needs are. So um, right now we have uh, our main switch. It's a layer three switch. We do all of our, we do all the routing on, right here's the switch. We do all the routing of our private traffic or management traffic on the layer three switch. Um, then we have two routers that um, are, does OSVF. For the client traffic or all the public traffic um, here we have the power injectors that we use um, we also have this also provides wireless for like cell phones and um, uh, laptops when we're up here working and then of course we also so have this a phone is, is this basically a mini access point? yeah this so this is actually um the hardware is a ubiquity pico that has been flashed with the Unify firmware, okay. so it's actually a Unify access point at this point. Okay. Um, and then, of course, we also have a phone that's hooked up to a little ATA that gives us phone service up here.
3: Okay. And that just that rings an extension at your office.
2: Yeah. So it, it's it's an extension off of um, the office our office network. Okay. Um, and then here we got the various power injectors um, and okay. other equipment, and also a UPS that is uh, network-managed. So um, this tower right here, the this self, this self-supporting one um, with the Omnis near the top, um, that is actually um, owned and that is operated by a paging company um, that they do um, 900 megahertz-based uh, pagers that you use for, um, uh, particularly hospitals, um, still use them a lot. Okay. Um, uh, this red and white tower right here, mm-hmm. um, there is one antenna at the very top And that is actually a TV antenna for a religious station um, that they receive their signal via the satellite dish over there and then retransmit it over the air um, to their clients. Um, And then this tower right here is our tower that we're on. Um, We got uh, about a dozen antennas up there. That first set of arms is 100 feet. So that that gives you about the scale that it's at. the top of the tower I think is 150 feet, uh, maybe 200, um, but we don't have any equipment up at the top. Um, around here is a very large, so, uh, very large self-supporting 500 foot tower that has I think four or five different FM um, radio stations are located on that tower. I don't touch anything. I mean, you can touch the base of the tower itself. Um, just, well, don't touch uh, the antenna. Yeah, don't go up there and touch the top of the, of the antennas. Um, if I remember right, the primary antenna up there is, um, is um, 500,000 watts. Wow. And, and then you see, the ta- you see the three TV antennas um, that are a little over the ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those is a 1 million watt. Um, transmitter. A
3: million watts.
2: Yeah, a million watts e, uh, ERP. What are they transmitting at a million watts? Uh, it is actually a religious TV station. Wow. Um, and then um, AT&T has some backhaul um, point-to-point microwaves, which is the squat antenna that you see kind of in the background with the gray domes on it. Okay. And then there's a tower over here um, that looks a lot like ours. That um, has a, vet, a lot of different clients, including another paging company, and even the um, the post office has um, some equipment up there. That now they're starting to get more like UPS with the handheld um, check um, scanner devices. Sure. And so they they have a f- um, they got a set of frequencies that they transmit off of this building okay. or off of that tower there. Was it eight hundred megahertz? Or? I do not know the frequency. Okay. Are you? All right. So obviously as being an inter- um, and a wireless ISP, we when we bought this building, we chose this specific location because it could see one of our towers. So uh, right up there, we have one of our, the, uh, that is our office connection. So that allows us to get on the office, allows us to speak to our data center, the rest of the core of the network, and give us internet. Uh, with that particular antenna, we run our connection uncapped. So we're getting about 40, 40 down, 40 up. Okay. Um,
3: and then um, around the corner, I can show you
2: Not our tower, I wish. So uh, actually right here. So uh, one thing that we also do is we, we do some stuff that's a little out of the box. As you can see, Um, On the roof line we have a second little white antenna um, and it actually connects to a warehouse across the street and what we do is we actually do a managed um, camera system. So the cameras are actually over there but they get recorded in the office and we do that over a private wireless link Um, and um, when all the cameras are running it's about 20 megs saturated. And of course, being a wireless company, we have to deal with towers a lot. And so one thing we're trying to get into to help keep costs lower is actually building our own towers. And so you can see we have one tower that's kind of in the weeds at this point. Um, That is actually a 60 foot tower. Um, It's a Rome. uh, Ron is a manufacturer. And um, between the three sections, it weighs about 900 pounds.
1: Climbing the tower was actually a blast. We put in to practice a bunch of safety precautions to make sure nothing bad would happen. After I got myself tied off and we got the equipment suspended 300 feet up in the air, we actually conducted an interview. And Zach explains exactly what happens on this tower and all the other towers that this tower communicates to to provide wireless internet to their customers.
3: By far, one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done. I, uh, <coughs> Zach somehow has gotten me up here. What are we, 300 some feet up? Uh, Yeah, about 350 feet. We're on on tower uh, that provides internet to this whole city and they provide it wirelessly. Zach, how often are you up here? I'm about once a month installing or changing equipment. Do you ever get, uh, you don't have a fear of heights then? Absolutely
2: not, I love this view. Now is this, uh, this is kind of your main tower. Yeah, this is our main data center uh, is underneath this tower. Um, it's on the top floor of this building and this tower is actually built about 40 feet above the roof of this 330 foot building. So we're actually quite a bit high and, and unfortunately the camera's mounted on the other side of the tower. I would show you the ground.
3: Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it, it's taken quite a bit of work
2: to, to get all this kind of set up. Yes, yes, and the weather is so great as you can see all this rain and wind.
3: Now this actually wirelessly links to other towers in the area. Is that the way it works? Yes, that
2: is correct. We have um, from this from this building and this tower alone, we have a link that goes 44 miles up to North Carolina. That's our farthest length by far, but our shortest one is actually to a tower over here. It's about four miles. And uh, you you guys maintain all of that stuff? Yes. Um. So I I I, I do the primary tower work and also most of the networking. And then below where we are now, this is where your main data center is, huh? Yes, um, and the top floor of this building, right under this tower is our main data center where we get our internet from and also house all of our servers. Now, what primarily is the equipment on this tower that we're looking at? So um, the primary vendor that we use for all of our wireless equipment is a company called Ubiquity. Um, we use a lot of their different products. And, but we also, on this particular tower, we also have a SAF Technica link. It's a licensed link, 11 gigahertz. To six, uh, our particular link is six miles and can do 336 megs. Wow,
3: that's absolutely incredible. And all that's being powered uh, from from
2: all this equipment these are all antennas i see yes uh, the, the, everything uh, um the white things below us are antennas and we'll, we'll show you some still shots of those later um, but um, we have i think about 11 or 12 different antennas on this roof not all of them are on this tower but a lot of them are and then the radios are attached behind them yes and all, all of our products that we use we run either ethernet or fiber up to the radio and then the radio is mounted directly to the antenna
3: outstanding anything else you want to Anything else you wanna tell me before you get me down from here? (laughs) No, no, it's just gonna take a few minutes to get everything wrapped up. All right, sounds good. Well, thanks a lot for for doing an interview at 300 plus feet. You're welcome. While hanging on this
2: belt. And and like I said, we'll we'll get some some, some still shots for that. Yeah, don't kill me on the way down. Absolutely not, Uh, too too, too much paperwork. (laughs) Okay, sounds good, thanks Zach.
0: And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Before we get out of here, we got a couple of emails we want to read. The first one comes in from Travis about a LibreOffice failure. Dun, dun, dun. He says, Chris and Noah, you guys are the best tech podcast hosts on the internet, period. Keep up the good work. Wow, thanks, Travis. He says, my wife wanted to use my computer, Arch Linux and GNOME 3.18, like a boost, to put together a research paper. She normally uses her Windows laptop, but decides to use my computer since it's Dual monitors are nice. I mentioned to her in the past that my computer runs Linux now that Microsoft Word has been replaced by something better. I had her fire up the trusty LibreOffice writer, and she starts typing away. After about an hour of data collection and a brain dump, she goes on to save the document, and LibreOffice crashes completely. I managed to recover the the document, but it only saved about one-third of what she had typed up. This left her quite upset, and she muttered the words, I'm never using Linux again, while walking out of the room. I did some troubleshooting and found that LibreOffice GTK3 implementation is flawed with GNOME 3.18. I was able to work around the issue by going to Tools Options LibreOffice General and checking the Use LibreOffice Dialogues box to stop the program from crashing and allowing me to save documents again. I was so close to bringing her to the light with Linux, but yet a complete failure. Thanks, Travis. Man, does that, does that sting no, for any of us who've dude gone through I- this?
1: Lived this this week. So basically I have enjoyed the fact that my wife is on arch because she helps me <laughs> troubleshoot things Like she figures things out like she got our printer to work And so she did it on my laptop and I come home and she just she has that look you know that look that you get when, Oh, no, when you walk in, you, yeah. yeah, I got the oh look. no, you and got so that I, look I, that looked. And so I walk in and I'm like, what's the matter, sweetie? And she's like, "LibreOffice dumped all, except she used more colorful language, dumped all of my stuff that I've been working on for the last like four or five hours. And I'm like, oh, I, I'm sorry. Um, and then at, like an idiot without even thinking because I'm just in IT mode, I got home from work. I'm like, well, did you save it?
0: Yes, I tried to save it, but it, the whole thing. Yeah, well, that's so anyway, that's a had- double whammy is this happens when you try to save. Right, that's what. She,
1: so, so she was so mad that she, it, it, she, she's like, "I want you to go downstairs or go back to the shop. You have to get me a hard drive." And I'm backing up all my stuff, and I'm formatting my computer, and I'm putting Ubuntu back on it. And she, uh, she did. She, the rest of the evening, she, really? uh, she backed all her stuff up and dumped it. You our know, team.
0: but that's, that's not really. Oh boy, yeah, I it's guess it's not. It's not Arch's. Well, it, it's
1: not. It's not Arch in specifics fault. It's the no. fact that it's, it's a new newer stuff. version of. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: it's no. It's it's the new version of GTK, uh, which she has on her desktop, and I do too. And you know it is interesting. I have not run into this, and I'm seeing uh, some folks in the chat room who have. Uh, and in fact, for Sean, oh man, that's a bummer, Sean. I'm sorry to hear that. Sean in the chat room says that auto recover didn't work either. Yeah, hers uh, didn't.
1: She didn't get hers back.
0: Yeah, because it you know it, it must depend on the the frequency there. Uh, this is the advantage of something like Docs, Google Docs, yeah. right? I Minute mean, saving all the time like that. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's a major bummer. I'm sorry to hear about that. Uh, but it sounds like the fix is in the show notes. If you guys want to read that email, just go say use LibreOffice dialogues, which maybe is a safer bet.
1: James B writes in and he wants to ask us about productivity applications. He says, I am in search of an application that's open source and can be used with a mobile device, Android, to help me keep track of my day. I jump from OneNote to Trello to Wonderlist, and I never stay with one long before I resort back to Post-it notes. That's all fine and good until they start piling up and I can't find that one specific one that I need. Wanting to stay open source, I thought, who better to ask than the Linux Action Show? Interesting. So what do you guys use to stay organized? Well, Chris, I don't know about you, but I I am a heavy user of Wonderlist and Evernote. And not because they're particularly open source and particularly desktop Linux friendly, but because they run into a web browser so I can get to them from everywhere and they do have mobile apps. Um, There was – I was looking in um, just before the show. There is a program called Nitro, um, and it is a – it's based on the – or I guess follows the the concept of the whole getting things done, uh, the book that's supposed to help you. Oh, yeah, Nitro. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that's the first program that comes to mind. If you wanted something, the only thing I didn't like about it when I installed it, I was playing with it a little bit. The only thing I didn't like about it was it doesn't have a native sync feature, so they basically tell you to use Dropbox to to sync your files across, and that doesn't seem like that's a real good solution, especially if you want access to it
0: mobily. Um, mm, but it's one I would check out. Mm, I don't know. I do you know, the nice thing about having it be on Dropbox is, uh, is that you can then get to it as a just, you know, from your file system on your laptop yep. or your desktop somewhere. Yep. Uh, so this is a complicated one. Um, I, have been, um, I have been experimenting with a lot of different tools. Everything from just using, like, uh, Google Now and just basic reminders and then combining that with Keep to mm-hmm. trying things like Wunderlist and Slack or there's other all open source alternatives out there. And here's kind of what I've landed on. Uh, I like everything to I can do it to be in plain text if possible. So mm-hmm. what I like to use is tools that uh, actually use Dropbox or something else on the back end and then have everything in plain text. And then what okay. I have started to do is I just have a G-Edit document or a quake terminal or a ByWord on my iPhone or notes on my uh, Android device that connects. I'll just use – because – I can find enough stuff that uses Dropbox on the back end that I can move my notes files around. Wunderlist is my to-do list manager, has been for a while now. And Mm -hmm. uh, for long-term storage of things I need to know, Evernote, I would like Mm -hmm. a better system, but that system needs to do OCR, that system needs to have good search and tagging, and that system would ideally be able to import Evernote. Uh, But that's what I use right now, sort of a a, a hodgepodge, and then really long-term stuff that I need to keep track of, like uh, contacts for, like, you know, if, uh, if I make it, you know, if I get a new doctor or a new lawyer or I, you know, somebody's birthday or something like that, I use OwnCloud on a DigitalOcean droplet. So I'm kind of spread out right now myself. So, but my short version is OwnCloud for the stuff I need online access to any device. That's sort of like contact information or calendar information, text files for to-dos and notes reminders. And, uh, and then I use the built-in uh, reminder system too on my mobile devices to remind me as well. It's kind of a hodgepodge, Noah. Yeah. That's B- basically what I'm doing, though, Bit of a house page, as they say. All right, well, Jane H. writes in, With possible Gmail solutions on Last 387, either Chris or Noah expressed concern about having his email stored on Google servers. That would be me. A Chrome extension called Gibrella, or Gabrella, allows you to download a select or all Gmails plus attachments to your machine in standard mbox format. hey it doesn't solve any privacy concerns you may have about emails stored on Google servers, but it certainly allays uh, any concerns you would have about losing your emails. Should there be a hack attack, a system burp, or a change of ownership direction or terms at Gmail? Great one, Jane H. So it's called Gbrella, G-B-R-E-L-L-A, and exports to the inbox format. I love that because I also have tools that can uh, read inbox formats and make it really easy to search and index them. Also, I'll just do a quick follow-up before uh, we wrap up. Uh, the uh, Twitch installs Arch is back. It is back. Uh, Twitch in the Shell has launched, twitchintheshell.com, and they are doing a live install of Arch right now as we record this very show. And you can use it. There it goes. Yeah. That's the music from the live install. And uh, here's what you get, Noah. On the, on the left-hand side, you can see the terminal. On the right-hand side, you can see people voting for uh, which command should come next. And this, huh. if you have, uh, if you're on Linux and you don't want to use Flash, you can use Livestreamer or MPV. To watch this or you just go to twitch slash twitch.tv slash twitch installs arch linux by the way back. it's great for interrupting your work too yeah you have that running in the background yeah. So that's great just leave this up dedicate a dedicated screen to it so we talked about it in the news segment and it is back uh, right here before uh we before we wrap up all right noah uh, so uh w- before we get out of here today you know maybe if i was interested in what the heck you were doing where would i go to to find out a little bit more about noah well, you could follow me on Twitter,
1: at Linux. Uh And, of course, I really, I, again, I want to thank everyone for shortening up the feedback. If you want to send feedback into the show, com slash contact, click Linux Action Show from the drop-down. Menu. Keep those brief and to the point. We really appreciate being able to read more and more of those as they get shorter.
0: Yeah, and uh, com. if you want to make something for the community. If you have a cool open source project you want us to know about or a news item you think's worth discussing, or a Great Runs Linux, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. It's not just a resource for this show. I might be a little biased, but I actually think it's one of the best news feeds for Linux news and things that are happening in the Linux community on the internet. linuxactionshow.reddit.com. And on top of that, it has a really great community, uh, at least as far as Reddit you know, communities go. <laughs> it's really, it's quite great. <laughs> com. Also, any of our previous app picks, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash picks. If you'd like to help keep us user-funded, you can go to patreon.com slash today. We're raising funds over there to support the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. And... Like I mentioned a little bit ago, we're going to be traveling to Colorado in a couple of weeks, and there'll probably be a rover log around that, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover for that, and previous rover logs, me on the go with uh, technology and all those kinds of things, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover for previous episodes and when we're in Colorado in a couple of weeks. And be sure you tune in next week on the Linux Action Show. We'll be back on Friday, and we'll be reviewing the new Fedora 23 release and I'd love to have you join us over at jblive.tv in the chat room and share your thoughts and give us your impressions of Fedora or if you have any questions. And you can get that converted to your local time zone, hopefully, at jupiterbroadcastingcom slash calendar. Follow me on Twitter at Chris L S. Follow the network at Jupiter Signal. Follow Noah at Kernel Linux. Twitter.com slash all of those. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning to this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. And we'll see you right back here next week. So, oh, really? uh, first of all, first of all, I gotta say, uh, the Thousand Trails people, uh, this Leconnor Thousand Trails, mm-hmm. unbelievable, unbelievable, um, uh, Halloween, uh, uh um, uh, celebration. Un- oh, cool! Unbelievable, like, so, you know, it, it really, it blew my mind, because, uh, these people, you know, they're not, they're not here at these, at these parks with houses with big, huge garages. Right. Uh They don't Uh have like they don't have like 30, 40 outlets to hook all this stuff up to. Uh, And they go they go so far out. People come out and they build structures. They set up steam and fog machines. They have lights. They have haunted houses that are like connected up to their trailers. Uh, They set up big, you know, big like big displays, like huge amounts of decorations and works and lights and uh, tons of candy. Um, It was the coolest Halloween, like, trick-or-treating thing I'd ever seen. This one gal, this. so some people, like, in one row uh, have, like, laser light shows, and it's uh-huh. super cool because they shine them up into the trees, and it, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, for the holidays, people get, like, these, uh... These, projectors? Uh, yeah, projectors that, like, do the point yep. lights, you know, like, the little laser points. Well, people took those and put them up into the trees, and then you combine that with the fog machines, and then another laser machine that, like, does big circular laser design patterns. It was... So the trees were all lit up, it was so freaking cool. Um, and a lot of energy and effort, and then you walk away from it and, like, all things- all things aside, like, if there was, uh, if this was just, like, a suburban community that you walked around, this would have been an extremely impressive Halloween, uh, showing. And the fact that all these people did it out of their, uh, RVs, uh, I mean, like, uh, really, really sophisticated, like, setups, too. Like, it was super cool. So tons and tons of candy, like so much candy that uh, by the end of it, none of the kids could carry their bags. Uh, we had to carry all the kids' bags. But uh, then kind of sad, you know, because then we're like, mm-hmm. well, we, we've exerted the kids a lot. We should try to take naps. So we put the two girls down, and I, I took Dylan for a walk around the rest of the preserve because it's huge, mm-hmm. and there's tons of other areas we didn't even walk to because sure. we got so exhausted. And so we just went to keep walking around, and while we were walking around, somebody came up to our trailer and uh, stole all their candy. Because no. we left it outside on the, because the bags were so heavy, the kids have been dragging them, so they were covered in mud. So I was like, well, I'm not going to bring him inside. I don't want to get the rover filthy dirty. So we left him out, and we have with the rover set up. We have a really nice, you know, we have the awning out, and so there's just a nice, like it's essentially a living room out there because we got tables and we got a fireplace. It's like a really nice little spot. And so uh, we're like, well, we'll just we'll just sit out here and eat some candy, and then when we're leaving, we'll just grab the bags. And didn't even think that somebody would come up and do that. But so yeah, somebody came up and took all the candy. <laughs>
1: I, I I don't even have words. How do you steal a kid's ki- a candy on Halloween? You, you got to be uh, well. You got to
0: be another kid, I think. Oh, yeah, I think that's what exactly that's a little more understandable. I yeah,
1: guess. I think another kid did it. Uh, yeah, I'd go I'd go to Costco or Sam's and be like, "Here, kids, Dad replaced your Halloween candy."
0: But it all it all worked out because then uh, that that evening they went to uh, the, you know back at their house they did trick or treating and uh, mm. got a whole another bag round of, another fill oh. their bags and. Well, our
1: kids did pretty well with trick or treating, and, and I'll send you a video after we get off the air. But uh, it, Sophie got home, and that was this is our first time really trick or treating. Yeah, right. And yeah. The concept to eating all the candy that she could that she got from all of, all these people for free was was uh, was a real novelty for her. <laughs> yeah. And about an hour in, like there's like almost no candy left of there's like this five pound bag that she had gotten, and. Uh, She's walking around just like she can barely even talk. She's yeah. just you can just tell that it, it's it 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 hit her.
0: Yeah, I uh we uh see we're mean. We are mean. We uh we divvy the candy out as like little incentives. Like oh, so we put yeah. it all we put it in, and Angela even beautifully this year, put it all in the community bowl. And this year, I think the it worked a little better because they because they've gotten all their candy stolen, right? So then to even get candy again is a huge win. So they all got candy again, and she convinced them to put all in a community bowl, and then she. Well, I guess
1: that's the great thing about communism: is if uh, somebody steals, <laughs> somebody steals what you you worked for, then the, then the government will provide then she, more. I guess. Then
0: she divvies it out uh, based on performance, I believe, or some some benchmark.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I just want to clarify: so your kids have to go in the cold and, and trick or treat to get yeah. their candy. And then they have to do the, additional things to get that candy awarded back to them this, after they have brought it to the house.
0: You know why though? Because candy's like money to kids, man. You, you know, yeah, yeah that's you, true. Uh, <laughs> this year's the first year we, uh, it, she did the community bowl, and I, I don't know. I think it, I think it's not a bad idea, really. Yeah. Because because honestly, I will tell you the truth, uh, uh, we don't really like them eating all that candy. Like it's yeah, not I, a. I, so it's I like I can see why. I, I've experienced that this week. Yeah. So we put the brakes on it a little bit and slow it down that way, and uh, it also uh, improves behavior. You know, it's a, it's a twofer. Yeah, you are you are probably a better parent, no doubt about it. <laughs> oh, don't blame me. Well, hold thing. on, here's what I gotta know, Noah. Here's what I have to yeah. know before you go mm-hmm. into this. So, mm-hmm. you climb up this tower. Did you, yes. okay, first, I gotta know which camera you use, and second of all, so did you the climb up there? expensive one. You climbed up there on the other side, and mounted yes. the camera, and then had to climb up well, the other side? And yeah, t- but to see, be on camera? makes it sound
1: like it was <laughs> secure and wasn't going to fall. It was ratchet strapped. To the opposite oh. side of the
0: tower. So hold on. So you climb both sides of the tower, one to mount the camera, and the other so that way you could climb up into the camera shot. Yeah, well, it's it's
1: <laughs> that we climbed one side of the tower, and then Zach actually positioned himself around to the other side, and we mounted the camera, and then we went to the opposite side yet again, so that the camera would be directly across from yeah, us. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was a major pain. That's that's <laughs> that's putting. It like, and here's the thing: when you're when you're moving around on the tower, you're not you're not tied off. So you're, uh, uh, and here's the other thing too. The only way to get equipment up is to put it inside of like this, basically like this bucket that's hanging off of a rope. So I'm watching my camera swing yeah. back and forth and I'm like, please God, don't fall out of there. Yeah, please but don't you know what?
0: You know what? All of it is worth the visual where you're climbing up the ladder and you look in your hand and you're holding the freaking microphone. It's so yeah. worth it. <laughs> you should make that a freaking profile picture somewhere because that's genius. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. It's the things I do for you. <laughs>
0: You're climbing, at the microphone. Oh, that's hilarious. And yeah, so the wind up there must have been crazy, but it didn't sound it was, bad at all. There, dude, There was a hurricane. You, then you can't, yeah, you can't
1: hear. And that's what I love about that, RE, that That RE50 is that the. if you look back in the footage, you can see the
0: camera shaking, and it was pouring no, rain. No, it it's not the RE50. It's the, yeah. uh, no. No, R- R- no not yeah. RE. Is it, is it? Is it made by RE? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, it's made by Electro Voice, but it's it sounded it's it sounded oh yeah Electro Voice yeah it sounded really good Noah like it wouldn't have even yeah, known R-50. yeah, yeah R-50. that sounded it's well that's the that's the mic to use that's the one we use on the floor too
1: yes sir dang it's the interview it's the it's it was the first piece of equipment I ever bought for specifically for Jupiter Broadcast that's funny because it's specifically that's why that's the industry standard interview mic like, because you can do
0: interviews <laughs> anywhere yeah. wow well that was really cool. <laughs>